Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List, coming at you with another episode today. Uh, before we get into today's episode, uh, we're going to stop at the primarycarepod.gmail.com inbox like we always do, where, as you know, uh, every week or every month or how often I put out these podcasts, I, uh, I, I reach out to my listeners who, who send me lots of emails. And today, actually, we get one of our international listeners. You know, I, I'm always so happy to hear my international listeners. Um, again, super big in the country of Slovenia. Big ups to my uh, Slovenia uh, uh, physicians uh, who are listening, um, or medical providers that are listening. In uh, This is an uh, international listener who is apparently from the United Kingdom. Dr. List, uh, welcome from across the pond. Uh, I have a joke for you that you might want to read on your podcast. Great, great, thank you. Uh, podcast, uh, or sorry, the uh, joke says, in Britain, we call it a lift, but Americans call it an elevator. I guess we're just raised differently. All right, all right, mate, let's start the podcast. Uh, also, new disclaimer today. Uh, so, disclaimer, uh, this is Primary Care Podcast. This is Dr. Mark List. Uh, we bring you the latest news, updates, and guidelines from around the globe. What's on this podcast is just my personal opinion and does not reflect the views of my current, past, or future employers. Uh, this is not medical advice, so just relax and have a good time. We try to keep it 15 minutes long because I know you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, pod girls, pod boys, pod people. Yeah, it's going to take me a while to get used to that new disclaimer, too. I know, it's just not the same. Uh, yeah, it happens when your computer goes under and you can't find any of your old files. That happens. Uh, all right, so... Um, way today, we today are talking about um, an article that uh, I caught on Journal Watch recently, and the future of medicine, I strongly believe, are polypills. Uh, I've done a podcast on polypills in the past. What are polypills? They are fixed-dose combination therapies um, for primary prevention of ASCVD, or MACE, uh, so atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease, cardiovascular disease, or... Uh, major adverse cardiac events, uh, MACE, is what uh, gets commonly used. Now, this is not something that is new. This is not something that is, uh, you know, recent. This has been going on for a long time. Obviously, in medicine, we've used combination blood pressure medicine for quite some time here in the United States. But internationally, especially in uh, many countries, not only in Europe, but also in Asia, um, it is common or at least it has been studied in several of these countries, about what are the benefits of these kind of fixed-dose polypills. And what is a polypill? Well, in all these studies, and we're going to talk about um, the, the major study that this meta-analysis of all these studies, but what it does is it's a, it's a polypill that usually consists of a statin, some kind of blood pressure medicine, or multiple blood pressure medicines, and then plus or minus a daily aspirin, a baby aspirin, um, every day. And the idea being that we would give these polypills to patients who have intermediate to high risk of coronary artery disease. Now, intermediate risk is probably the best place to put these people because when they're high risk, we're going to be on super high doses of statin therapies and perhaps you even want to um, have not just a fixed dose, but a very specific dose of statins. And since they're high risk, you also want to make sure their blood pressure is incredibly well controlled. And so then you're going to be looking at very specific uh, blood pressure regimens, 
Um, you're going to have maybe uh, different needs depending on aspirin or if they're uh, somebody that, that you're talking about secondary prevention and somebody who's high risk, uh, then you're going to be maybe maybe they've had a stent, maybe they're on Plavix, so aspirin is not a great choice maybe for them, question mark. So the, the studies that have been designed were all designed for intermediate risk people. And what how do we define intermediate risk? Well, if we look at our ASCVD calculator, the ASCVD risk score from the ACC AHA, which we use for almost the last decade now, looks at, right, that high risk, or sorry, that low risk being anybody under 5%, and kind of borderline risk being 5 to 7.5%. Obviously, this percentile is the 10-year risk of developing, having a having a, a, a risk for an ASCVD uh, event. Um, the intermediate risk that we're going to talk about today and the patients that fall in this category is 75 to 20%. And for our American patients, um, this is a huge amount of our patients, right? Not only um, with our statin or with our cholesterol, but also potentially diabetes, potentially bad cholesterol levels, uh, our, our terrible lifestyle. A, a very, very large percentage of my patients fall in the intermediate risk. Uh, smoking history, again, another thing that I didn't, I didn't talk about. Uh, and greater than 20% on that ASCVD 10-year risk score is is considered high risk. So 20% greater than high risk. But the intermediate risk is what we're talking about today, that 7.5 to 20%. Now, 7.5 to 20% in that CVD risk, ASCVD risk score has been under a lot of scrutiny recently because there's a potential that, you know, either we're, it depends on the study you read. Some of the studies say we are under-treating that group and we should be putting more of these patients on statins. Other, uh, other categories say that because it's intermediate risk, these risk scores are overestimating the percentage of patients that are benefiting these from these medications, and so are probably actually harming more patients with the side effect of medications and benefiting them. But one of these ideas, internationally anyways, from three different studies in this meta-analysis uh, that we're going to talk about, is just a setting it and forgetting it type of approach, where we know these patients on the intermediate risk have multiple, likely multiple risk factors, or could see risk reduction from multiple different avenues, okay? And so the study we're looking at, uh, if you want to follow along, was from The Lancet. And this was a study that was the end of August. So we're about it's about two, week, two weeks old now. And the title is called Fixed Dose Combination Therapies with and Without Aspirin for Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease and Individual per Participant Data Meta-Analysis. And we've talked about polypills before. Um, in fact, one of these studies we actually covered, but there's basically three studies. One of these studies was in Southeast Asia, and this is the one we talked about on this podcast, the TIPS-3 trial, uh, 5,000 some of the participants, um, and basically they put them on a polypill consisting of simvastatin-40, 10 of ramipril, 100 of atenolol, and 25 of hydrochlorothiazide with a low-dose daily aspirin, 75 milligrams, and then monthly gave vitamin D, 6,000 units, okay? Or 6D, 60,000 units, 6D, 60,000 um, for vitamin D per month. Now, we talked about in this trial that major ad cardiac, major adverse, major adverse cardiovascular events decreased. Well, if you add that study, which was, you know, over 5,000 patients with an international trial that was done in Canada and China and Argentina and Australia and a bunch of places in Europe and some other places in South, South, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and, and also including Russia, uh, South Africa, Sweden, the United Kingdom, uh, 12,000 participants. Um, and again, they talked about a Crestor, so Resuvastatin, 10 milligrams with Candistartin, 16 milligrams, 
and hydrochlorothiazide 12.5 milligrams daily. No aspirin, no vitamin D, just that. So statin and double blood pressure pills. And then they added that trial, 12,000 patients, so that's 15,000, uh, oh, actually, uh, sorry, 18,000 patients, and added that to a polypill trial out of Iran, which was almost 7,000 patients, right? So we got about 25,000 patients total, ballpark. Um, and, and the Iranian polypill was, again, a statin. This one was atorvastatin, 20 milligrams, hydrochlorothiazide, 12.5 milligrams, enalapril, 5 milligrams, or valsartan, 40 milligrams, and aspirin, 81 milligrams. And this Iranian study is a lot more of kind of what I would normally think about with my own patients. Uh, ACE inhibitor, 5 milligrams, uh, enalapril, um, hydrochlorothiazide, 12.5, atorvastatin, 20 milligrams. Very, very, very standard blood pressure and cholesterol regimens that I use in my own practice, plus or minus this 81 milligram aspirin. We'll get to that at the end. And so what did they show? Well, they showed significant reduction in cardiovascular disease events. Uh, and the hazard ratio was actually really, really good. Uh, we're talking about, uh, so primary outcome in the five years. So even in only five years, right? We're not even talking about the 10-year uh, ASCVD risk percentage like we normally talk about, but in the five-year uh, trial follow-up, right? Primary outcome uh, was occurred in 3% of participants in the uh, fixed dose versus 5% or 4.9% in the control group. So hazard ratio of 0.62, uh, very, very statistically significant. And the number needed to treat uh, was later in the article. Hold on. It was like in the low 50s. I will find that um, before the podcast episode is up. Let me pause. With, okay, I found it. With the number needed to treat uh, to prevent one cardiovascular major, major cardiovascular event in five years was 52. Now, from a relative risk increase, uh, and you know how I feel about that, the primary outcome, which was cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, or arterial revascularization. So, so big outcomes here, big, big events. And when we talk about hazard ratios, the hazard ratios for the, those on polypills that did not include aspirin was 0.68. So again, a really good reduction in uh, relative outcomes. Now, if you included aspirin, which we talked about some of these trials included aspirin, the hazard ratio actually dropped to 0.53, which is fantastic. Uh, relative reduction in major cardiac, major uh, adverse cardiovascular events. And so when we talk about the, the value of this, the major value is that this is a set it and forget it. You put the patient on this fixed dose and you say, you don't need to worry about you know, titration, you're not, you know, getting into all of the, the minor little nuts and bolts. You're not having to worry about um, medication uh, compliance where patients aren't able to fill or aren't filling or are forgetting to take pills or are skipping pills. Really, it's just one pill, which is always an easier sell to patients than it is to take multiple doses over, you know, multiple, multiple pills and potentially multiple doses of those multiple pills during the daytime. And this is, I think, one of the, the, the future best practices, I think, when you have this intermediate risk patients and we have such poor follow-up sometimes and we have such poor buy-in from patients, we have, we have such a uh, uh, lack of adherence to, med to complex medication regimens. And guess what? Uh, every time patient has come in for copays, copays are expensive, lab draws, lab draws are expensive. This is kind of like a set it and forget it, come back in five years. And the data looks really, really, really good. And so 
why do I bring this up? Because I think this is I think this is going to be one of the things that we see as an, a very legitimate option going forward for the future, where we talk about these low doses, of these medicines, not high doses, low doses with fewer side effects, less likely to cause uh, electrolyte abnormality, less likely to cause significant major side effects. And, and in this study, the side effect profiles were very, very good compared to placebo, uh, pretty marginal. If anything, you know, there were, there were no, were no major issues because again, these are all low doses. And so I think that this is just the future. I think it's smart medicine. This is one of those things, uh, the KISS uh, uh, strategy, the, the KISS strategy, which is keep it simple, stupid. Um, because again, when it comes to trying to communicate with patients, sometimes keeping it as simple as can be uh, is the best. And, and the data looks, again, really, really good, despite it not being as, as intense as it could be. Now, why is this? Well, we know that when patients take multiple blood pressure medicines, it works better than starting on one and then increasing the dose up to max dose, right? You see a better outcomes. You see you see lower events. You see better blood pressure control when you have multiple low doses of medicines. So the idea here being that, okay, we're going to have a statin, but then we're going to mix it in with multiple low dose blood pressure medicines. So now that we get blood pressure reduction, we get significant benefit in terms of risk factor management. But then we also get a lot less side effects and it's more tolerated. It's more well tolerated, more well tolerated. It's very well tolerated. Uh, and again, there's there's less side effects and it's easier to take. Now, the second part of this discussion I want to have before I wrap it up today about what I think the future of polypills is, is that it was very interesting. And for those of you who know me very well, know that I am fascinated by the whole idea of aspirin for primary prevention. Now, in the United States, we've gone away, and, and, and basically a lot of the guidelines worldwide have gone away from aspirin for primary prevention. And historically, if you look at old, old data, we know that aspirin worked very, very well for primary prevention. And then more recent data basically said, well, it doesn't look like this is actually true. You know, aspirin isn't that beneficial, and maybe we shouldn't be recommending a baby aspirin for everybody, the average person who's low risk, who's intermediate risk, who's high risk. Well, for high risk, for sure. And for diabetics, for sure. And for people that it's secondary prevention, for sure. But for primary prevention, for the average person, it was basically said, okay, don't do it. In this study, it's a, it's here is the big debate is, are we seeing the benefit, the increased benefit from adding aspirin for primary prevention in this trial? Are we seeing it because these are intermediate risk, right? Which again, would add that as a category to start all intermediate risk people on uh, baby aspirin. But those of you who know me know that I've been advocating against or been advocating for weight-based aspirin dosing for a long time. Because all of the trials that were initially done in like Framingham and some of the earlier trials in the United States were all based on when the United States had skinny people. And we don't have many skinny people anymore, right? Overweight, obesity, uh, the majority of Americans are going to be obese by 2023 or uh, sorry, by 2030, I think, um, was the was the outcome or two thirds were going to be obese or something like that. But uh, regardless, I, the, the numbers are staggering in the United States. And so it's not surprising that in real practice, we don't see a benefit of aspirin. So this is a study that was uh, or analysis in 2018. So again, this is not new data. But Nature Reviews Cardiology, the, the article was an editorial called Time to Adjust Aspirin Dose to Body Weight. And they go through all of the data 
um, in The Lancet and in other studies, but basically that show that if you have a patient that weighs less than 70 kilograms, so for my listeners in the U.S., that's roughly 150 pounds, then there's benefit in baby aspirin. But once you get above 70 kilograms, above 150 pounds, there is no benefit to baby aspirin. Uh, or, or at least, uh, you know, not statistically significant benefit in, in reducing the risk of cardiovascular events. So, and that's just kind of the general population. Now, when they increase the dose of aspirin from 81 milligrams of aspirin up to 325, then there was value in those over 70 kilograms, aka, you know, 150 pounds, all the way up to 200 pounds or about 90 kilograms. Above 90 kilograms, then you had to use 500 milligrams of aspirin to see a reduction in cardiovascular events uh, and including cardiovascular death. And again, all of these numbers are statistically significant when you use higher doses at the higher weights. And so, again, this is not new. If anybody has been paying attention to the data, despite the, the recommendation that all patients don't need to take aspirin, the average risk patient doesn't need to take baby aspirin anymore to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events and death, I would argue that there is still value. You just have to significantly weight-based dose it. And yes, as you get in a higher dose of aspirin, then you have to worry about GI bleeds and a lot of those other side effects. But again, if you're going to get benefit, the data has been really clear that we should be weight-based dosing our aspirin. And I don't know why that's not a recommendation yet. I think the data has been very clear on that. Uh, I, again, I, I'm not, I've, I've very unsure of why they've never made that change in the recommendation. But studies like this make me very confident that if my patient is an intermediate risk profile person and they have that ASCVD 10-year risk score of 75 to 20%, an aspirin is likely to benefit them, right? And this trial data adds to that. Um, why do I also think that it's probably not just that the fact that they're intermediate risk, but also weight-based dosing? Well, this is an international trial full of lots of people internationally. And if you go to the uh, into the baseline participant characteristics of this meta-analysis, and they and they differentiate all three trials, right? They, they, they spread out all three trials. If you go look at the BMI, the median BMI in all three studies is 25, 27 for the European one, or the, the international one, but 25 for Southeast Asian, 27 for the international one, and 26 for the Iranian one. That is not an American profile of a, a, a median BMI in any study nowadays. So, Again, did aspirin work better in this meta-analysis because people are skinny? Probably. Probably because they weren't heavy. They weren't obese. They were, most of these weren't even overweight. Um, but again, I think that it's hard to differentiate because they didn't, they didn't, um, right, they didn't, you know, separate out to see if, is this just because they're intermediate risk or is it because they're just skinny? I would argue it's probably because of weight-based dosing. But again, uh, if you have a BMI of 27, you're probably getting past that 150 pound range, depends on how short you are. Um, so maybe it is just the fact that they're intermediate risk. So uh, takeaway points, uh, maybe we're underdosing aspirin and polypills are the future. I really think the the ease for patients, the ease for providers, the set it and forget it, the just do the fixed dose because we're seeing significant impact compared to standard control or even placebo control. Uh, I, I think that's the way to go. So again, uh, this has been Dr. Mark List uh, talking about these subjects. Uh, thank you for tuning in the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, hopefully, uh, you can now go forward this next week and, and feel a little bit maybe braver about aspirin in your patients, maybe that we're under-treating now with baby aspirin. Reminder, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks, and have a great week.